forever. Dog. Second City to me was sketch comedy. It was Nichols and May to me. And then later, um, SNL. It still didn't hear the word improv. It wasn't part of my life as I was uh, growing up within the business. Um, and I wish it had been because I now see how helpful it is um, with my own daughter, with young actors, just getting you from A to B so much faster, I think, than acting classes. It, or at least it's a good addition to it. It makes you brave. Hello and welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or my brief recurring role as an alien on the Disney Plus series Milo Murphy's Law. Our guest is Julia Duffy, who you might know from New Heart or from Designing Women or from any of the hosts of uh, interesting ingenues turned quirky moms that she has played over the years. Uh, we're going to talk about those two big credits. We're going to talk about her really incredible work on the HBO show Looking, doing soaps in the 70s, doing summer stock, well, year-round stock in Minnesota. And uh, we're going to begin with a credit you haven't seen, but I felt we really should talk about anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Julia Duffy. Julia Duffy, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. It is so good to see you again. Full disclosure, Julia Duffy played my mom in a, in a Fox pilot in 2004. Wow, was that long ago? Because it was right before I got married. Oh. And if we'd gotten picked up, the upfronts would have interrupted my bachelor party. So maybe it's all for the best. It probably is. Do you remember who else was in that pilot? I have to be honest and say I do not. Uh, Randall Park from Fresh Off the Boat. Ah, Randall okay. Park and I were, uh, we were fifth and sixth on the call sheet because um, I was the ne'er-do-well neighbor, or ne'er-do-well brother. He was the closeted neighbor. We were not pivotal to the plot, but um, I was just really, really psyched to be working with you as my mom because I'd, I'd been a fan for, for so long anyway. It didn't start with Newhart, but we right now are going to start with Newhart. Okay. What I did not realize is that you were not you were not an OG. You were a replacement that came in second season on that show. Yes. Well, I did a guest shot the first season. Okay. And I was doing another series for CBS, Wizards and Warriors. That's where I fell in love with you. Oh, well. That's the first game. We'll get to that yeah, in a I moment, but we'll start with Newhart. Yeah. So anyway, they um, it, it was great, and I had scenes with Bob. And uh, and I was it was just fulfilling a dream. I got to work with Bob Newhart, and that was that. And then the series I was doing didn't get picked up, which just killed me because I adore doing it. And then later that day, they asked if I would be a regular on Newhart. And later I thought, that day? Okay, I guess this is what was the same network. So. I know, but later that day. So there could have already been discussions saying, I don't think we're picking this up anyway. And it would be a shame to lose her. Yes. That's I, how it went. That's how the conversation went. Don't be falsely okay, modest. I, I okay, I have no idea, but it happened in the same day. So it was like crushing news. Oh, really good news. 
<laughs> and followed by what is probably an easier schedule too, you know, doing a multicam versus doing a single oh, cam fantasy show. Yeah, and I didn't have to dress like a princess and ride a horse and wear that wig and um, get hit in the head with a broadsword as I did on Wizards and Warriors, but... Uh, yeah, maybe well, the only medieval sitcom. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, well uh, uh, I'm trying to like get to that in a moment. We're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick to my plan. And I'm gonna talk okay, Newhart, and then we're gonna double back and go to Wizards okay. and Warriors and your childhood and all that stuff. Okay. But what was it? What was so dreamy about working with Newhart? You know, I had watched him forever, like forever and ever, my whole life. He was on TV, and adored his show, everything about it. And I completely got him. I completely got him. How do you mean? I just got that kind of comedy. Yeah. The pauses, the Jack Benny pauses. And I knew what he needed when I auditioned for the part. Not that he auditioned with me, but I knew what was needed for Bob in the scene. It was so easy because the scene was with Bob. Mm -hmm. And I knew exactly what would work with Bob. What would work with Bob? Uh, to make him uncomfortable. Right. That was really the thing. Yeah. Because he was so awkward being put in a position. Anything to make him stammer or, or right. pause and collect himself. Yeah. It, it just played itself. It was a great scene. It was perfectly written. That's magnificent. Going into an audition, knowing what how to push your scene partner's buttons, especially when your scene partner's not the one who's reading with you, is, I mean, that's foresight. That's a lot of, uh, that's, that, that you've given this a great deal of thought, clearly. Yes, because it, because I knew him so well, I could picture it so well. It didn't matter if the person reading with me, you know, was horrible or not. But just so that your audience understands how stupid actors can be about themselves. I think my long-term listeners do, but carry yes. on. Um, when I heard that about this audition, I thought, I even said to my husband, my then boyfriend, I said, should I? I mean, I just did this episode of Cheers and the bit is kind of similar. Should I be seen <laughs> on TV? Me, should I be seen on TV doing the same thing in the same season in a, two sitcoms? And he said, it's Bob Newhart. You love him. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> I said, you're right. <laughs> I was so stupid. I thought I didn't even have a career yet in L.A. to speak of. I, oh, I guess not. Because I mean, most of your work was in New York doing Broadway yes, and soaps, right? But I did, you know, I had this series, but it only ran for however many episodes it was, 10 or something. And um, and I, I didn't know I, if it was going to get renewed. But I still had that New York pure actor thing of... You shouldn't be tacky. And I thought maybe that would be. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I go back and just want to smack that girl around. But it only, I mean, uh, we've had people come on this show, by the way, and say, like, yeah, I turned down a regular role on Star Trek because it, it, it felt it wouldn't forward my craft. So don't beat yourself up about yeah. this, okay? Um, what, um, what's what was your in to Stephanie? What was your way to connect with this character and be like, was this a part of you? Because you're a very alert and and smart person in every interaction I've had with you. And Stephanie's a little bit of a spoiled rich girl. She's not particularly, I mean, she's savvy, but you wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. call her street smart. What was, your, what was your connection to her? Well, first of all, I... Uh, 
in the very broad category of dumb blondes, and way too many characters are put into the cat category, but for the sake of being concise. Sure. I had always adored uh, um, dumb blonde roles because I worshipped comedy, character comedy, always. Okay. And some of the best things that I'd ever seen, Carol Lombard, were dumb blondes. Judy Holliday. And oh, Judy Holliday, my God. Yeah. Um, and I could hardly think of a better way to be comedic when you looked like me than that. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I were, there were a lot of, believe me, I, I've i stolen from, you know, John Belushi and all kinds of people, even though I'm playing an ingenue. Mm -hmm. I'll steal from anybody. But I adored it. I never thought, I never saw anything wrong with it. I got it. And I thought it was just about the most fun thing you could do. Because it's like playing an alien. This rich girl who doesn't really understand uh, ethics. Uh, work. Work, doing the right thing. It's all a mystery to her. And to me, that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> That's delightful. It seems to me, in, in reading your book, Bad Auditions, which I cannot recommend enough um, for, for actors uh, new and experienced, that you had a keener understanding of a phrase that did not come into vogue until recently, of your brand. You seem to understand like what Julia Duffy Inc. brought to the table in a yes, way. Julia like Duffy, and, and, and you and you because you you accompany every sort of section of the book with a contemporary headshot, and we watch you kind of grow out of ingenue and move into to other phases of your career and your life. Um was there a shock to the system when ingenue stopped happening? Was there a was there a a weird sort of like readjustment in how you approached auditioning? Well, absolutely, okay. because I looked so young for so long. Yeah, I probably could be in some kind of a record book for how long I was an ingenue, because I'm small. I have little features. I look young, and so I was an ingenue forever. And I remember clearly when I started actually reading for grown-ups and or getting those roles, I would get a little panicky because I thought, I wonder if acting young is part of acting for me because it has been for so long. I've been playing people younger than me mm -hmm. for such a long time. And I was panicked that I couldn't act anymore if I wasn't acting young. But as you can see, I worried about everything, <laughs> like <laughs> doing two sitcoms in the same season. I, two I phenomenal, critically yeah, respected sitcoms that are in the fantastic can. Fantastic guest roles and two fantastic <laughs> sitcoms. Yeah. Oh, my God. Another amazing script. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh <God>. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, listen. This is this is one neurotic talking to another. I, I'm, I'm not going to judge you. Um, can we talk for a moment about Peter Scolari? Absolutely. We, we He's come up on the show before because we had Becky Ann Baker on a few months ago. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Who had worked with him on Girls later in his career. But you worked with him in what I'm I'm feeling was his first big post-Bosom Buddies role. Yes, definitely. Okay. So what was what was his vibe as Tom Hanks is on the ascent and Peter Scolari is doing great work but has stayed at a certain level while his co-star? Was there any sort of uh, – a lesser man might have been bitter, maybe even a little resentful. 
did that come off of him at all, or was he just about the work? He and Tom were so close and remained so close and had shared such a formative experience together that nothing could get in the way of it. I cannot imagine. He adored Tom. Tom came to the set. Uh, If Peter ever had a problem with it, I never saw it. And I think he was pretty realistic about his type and Tom's type. You get... I mean, you get pretty realistic about who you are and how you, you fit into the And if you don't, it's at your own peril, yeah. I mean, yeah. he was, Scolari was shorter than me, um, in incredible shape, but a bespectacled incredible shape, you know, sort mm-hmm. of like a, a really buff nerd, and and did that really well for decades. Got an Emmy nomination, uh, won an Emmy, I beg your pardon, won an Emmy for it, girls. For girls, yeah. Um, what was he, did he have a clown background? I know he was a juggler. Well, he's incredibly athletic. Okay. And I think at least some of his four children, at least a couple of them have inherited that. He could do anything. He, oh. I used to say he could be in the circus. He literally could be in the circus. Oh he's, he was so talented. And, you know, juggling is one of those things that you find out in five minutes if you can do it or not. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the first time he did it, he could do three balls oh immediately God. because he was like that. And... He could ride a unicycle. I mean, he did all kinds of things. He could do anything he wanted to do. He was so physically gifted. He was such a delight to watch. And you guys had, there's even a moment early on in the show where um, you guys blow a kiss to each other and depart and you turn to the rest of the cast and say, we are adorable together. <laughs> and it, it's so true, you know? It, it speaks to Stephanie's lack of self-awareness, except that she's right. <laughs> right. You guys had incredible chemistry together being thrown together it it feels like it was so interesting because the show had a massive reshuffling after season one newhart did and they bring in all this new blood and it's pretty much just bob mary fran and tom poston who stick around from the first incarnation is that right Mm -hmm. and then you and scolari and am i missing somebody i might be missing somebody comes Um, in later on well we had Oh, the poor Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. Right. They yeah, yeah. always had them recurring, and we had the TV station recurring with Fred Applegate as the boss. Right. And the townspeople and mm-hmm. the cop. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Just fantastic characters. That I adored the townspeople. I loved that show. I genuinely loved that show, and I was watching it this week for the first time in years, and it holds up like a gem. And there's a part of me that likes it more than the 70s Bob Newhart show, where he's mm-hmm. the psychiatrist. I think there's a, a subtlety to the work in the 80s show, um, despite all of your shoulder pads, that is, uh, that is really fun to watch. Well, also, the town was a character in itself. Yes. This little town in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And no one ever appreciating Dick because they had their own agenda, their own things that they thought were cool and they right. didn't think he was. There was somebody was always saying, thanks a lot, Dick. <laughs> and everything was his fault in their eyes. And it just made it so much fun. But what I want to say about Peter, um, I could say, I could talk about Peter all day, but it just happened from the first moment we exchanged the first dialogue. Really? And people say, you had so much chemistry. And I say, I, I say, thanks, but Peter has chemistry with everybody. 
That's how he comes into a scene. It always feels like improv. You're never improvising. You always feel like you're improvising. Always with him. We hardly ever talked about anything. We didn't talk about something about the scene or should we do it this way? It just happened. There was no reason to talk. We were completely on the same wavelength. In person, couldn't be more different. But I'm telling you, it we were just the same person together in those scenes. It really shows. It really, really shows. Yeah. It, it's amazing. Sometimes you, I mean, you can't force these things, and that's why they do chemistry reads, I think, because they want to make sure it, it, it works because they're not going to be able to train it into you but it or direct it into you, but you guys had it in spades. <laughs> Hi everybody, Tim Heidecker here. We have a brand new Office Hours that just came out of the oven. We've got legendary psych rocker Ty Siegel. And Doug is back from down under. G'day. G'day. And his mommy came with him. Mommy and Gary Lusenhop are here too. Alicia let me know that she finished the White Album, has thoughts on that. So much more on this legendary episode of Office Hours. Find us on your podcast app of choice or watch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash office hours live. So who are the animals? Because I don't well, smell them. Well, well. You mentioned the town being a, uh, a character. Can we talk about your background? You grew, you grew up in the Midwest? I did. I grew up in Minneapolis. In Min- but in the in the city proper or just outside? Well, in a suburb. Okay. Um, I grew up in a place called Meadowbrook, which was low-income housing that was built uh, for after the war when everybody was getting married and starting families, and people would live there for like a few years and start their families, and then they would move into a real house. These were row houses like you would see in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not the kind of thing you see here much. But, but no, we we see them in like um, uh, Nassau County on Long Island. That first wave of suburbs yes, from the early nineteen fifties, late forties. In the mid, in the Midwest, it's not something you saw. Often. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But this was a post-war mm-hmm. building, and it was on the edge of a swamp, and it was across the highway from a very nice neighborhood called Interlock and Park, with beautiful homes, and that's where I went to school, and all my friends lived. So I grew up wrong on side the, of the wrong tr- side, wrong side of the, of the swamp. Um, in my head, I did. And um, it was an interesting juxtaposition. But, you know, there was such a thing as, um, what would you say, Uh, dignified uh, poverty then. Okay. (laughs) And uh, we were poor because my father left and my mother was raising four girls by herself. Mm. And... I, you know, she always worked. It's not like we didn't have food or anything. What did she do? Well, she she was a housewife when he left, and she had to do something fast. So she opened a nursery school, which was needed in the complex, and she, that's where I went to nursery school. It was right next door. And um, then she got a job because she could type, and oh. she got a job with an insurance agent, I think, as a secretary, and then she got a job doing something similar at a real estate company that was very small. It was not a lot larger than where we are, owned by a woman. 
an independent real estate company that grew to become one, probably the largest independently owned real estate company in the Midwest. It was in five states or something by the end. I knew everybody and all their children. It was that small. And she wound up being the head of the closing department there at the home office. So she was an executive, basically. That's kind of inspiring. That's some real American dream shit right there. It really is. Yeah. What did the class difference, how did the class difference affect, because you started acting from a very young age. I've, I've got you doing stuff professionally when you were a teenager. A teenager. About 18, I think. 18. Yeah. That's that's pretty young. And I imagine there was probably some school theater before that. And a lot of community theater. And a lot of community Minneapolis theater. Minneapolis has always had lots and lots of theater. Okay. What kind of stuff do you remember doing when you were little? Oh, my God. Um, let's see. Well, I took drama lessons downtown at the McPhail Center for Performing Arts. And the first play we did was called Park Your Parka. And something about a girl from Alaska... I don't know, meeting, uh, moving and being the outcast and plays that were written for young people. Okay. That kind of thing. Okay. And then I got to go on tour with a play about a princess, and I was the princess that went to school tours. And um, that's how I got my first professional job, because when I was 18, my drama teacher was called by this summer stock theater in town. It's still there, the old log theater. It's actually year-round stock. And it might be kind of a dinner theater now. Anyway, I'm ready they down, said, so I can look it up. we're hiring, uh, we need an ingenue for this play called Love and Kisses. And she told them to call me, and I guess I went in and read for it, and I got the part. And so that was professional, actually. And of all people, Nick Nolte was in the cast. Wow. Yeah. I would not have predicted anything that happened subsequently. Why not? Um he was playing a character called Freddie, who was very, very stupid, and he played it very well and was funny. And that was all I knew of him. Oh, really? I, I saw nothing in any other way of him. Just this big, hulking, dumb so guy who did it very well. One day I woke up and he was a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, uh, was there any thought of you doing anything besides this? Oh, God, no. No, this was yeah. driven from the from the get-go. Yeah. Do you think, how much of that was you trying to prove to the, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you, and yet here I go. How okay. much of that was you trying to prove to the kids from the other side of the swamp that you matter, you're here? Oh, probably everything. Okay. When they went off to dance class with their leotards mm-hmm. or something else like that that I desperately wanted to do but we couldn't afford, oh, it killed me. And I would sit like, you know, this far from the TV and... There weren't a lot of young people on TV or in movies in those days. You didn't see children all the time. No. Now we make stars out of 12-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. Celebrities. Uh, But not then. And so I would see, like, little girls on a shampoo commercial, and I'd think, God, if I could just get my hair to stop flipping like this. By the way, is it flipping today? It still does it. Um, I'll bet I could act as well as that girl on a shampoo commercial. Amazing. And I was desperate to be one of those girls on a shampoo commercial but that's interesting so was it it was a drive to do this for a career not necessarily a drive for fame and fortune oh i i didn't even know what fame and fortune was okay interesting I, all i thought about was being on stage i would read plays like crazy if i would look at the cast list in plays which is on the bottom shelf at the library i remember exactly all the plays were on this bottom shelf and i'd lie there in my stomach and 
there'd be a cast list. And if it said, you know, Debbie, age 12, I would read that play because it had a young girl in it. Amazing. And all I thought about was going to New York and being on the the stage. I don't know how I would have dreamt about being on TV or movies. It didn't even occur to me. It, um... Except being in a shampoo commercial. Given, of course. And I did wind up doing, actually, quite a few shampoo commercials. Did you? Really? Well, you got amazing hair. You got great hair. Thanks. That's incredible. And you were probably also playing 12 until you were like 30 or something. Something like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So when do you move to New York? How old are you when you moved to New York? I was 19. I wanted to go immediately. I wanted to go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts because I read about it in a young, in a youth, a young adult novel. <laughs> and in it, you know how they have those series of books, maybe your daughter's read them. They always star twins. They're always about twins, twin girls. <laughs> There's a lot of <laughs> And twin, they have yeah. their adventures, lots of twins. Yeah, so they love a twin. <laughs> some series about twin girls and their um, escapades in high school or whatever. And I was probably 11. Okay. And one of them wanted to be an actress, and she went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Oh, wow. So I sent away for a booklet. And when the booklet came, (laughs) I didn't open it. I went and changed into a really nice outfit, and I went out on the front porch where nobody would see me, and I read the booklet from cover to cover. You, they sent you, me. You changed into your interview clothes in I, order to read I, the booklet? I did. I changed into an outfit that was just for, had, you know, had I had an audience. <laughs> I was wearing the right, audit, the, the right outfit for this incredibly important moment where I was going to read about the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I have recently done their commencement address, both, oh. uh, both at their L.A. and New York campus. Oh, my God. Yeah. Is the New York campus in the East 20s? Am I thinking of the right place? Uh, it's 29th and Madison. Yeah, okay. And it's been there since the 1880-something. Yeah, yeah. The first graduating class pictures you see when you walk in, they're wearing, like, bustles. and Yeah, yeah. of course. It's really cool. On, yeah. It was a Stanford White mansion. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. The costume room was his indoor swimming pool. Wow. I always wondered why you went down steps. Oh. Because it was a pool. Said, oh, it was a swimming pool. Wow. It was this great curved uh, staircase going up. and I mean, it was so cool. That's amazing. Yeah. I went to a church around the corner. Uh, oh, the little church around the corner. Literally. Some of our students lived there. They would take a few every year. They um, have a, a long-standing connection with the acting community for various reasons. Yes. But the Episcopal Actors Guild is based out of there. And um, there's a bunch of, they do like equity fundraisers, I think. It's a it's a neat place that's always had a connection to. Right. Uh, I guess that's why they took the acting students, yeah. only boys. And then they had to do some work there or something. But Every once in a while, Rex Harrison would come and, and read the lesson. Oh my at, when God. I was growing up, which was mind blowing to have Doctor Doolittle up in the pulpit uh, reading scripture. Oh wow! It was it was, it was right around the corner from from Rex which is why Harrison. I was double checking. Rex well, Harrison, Edward Herman. Oh my God! Bernard Hughes is interned there, right near my father. Well, we had a lot of these connections at the academy in those days. I know it's a very different school now, but our the people who ran the school, uh, Fra- Francis Latin and uh, Francis Fuller. One's a girl, Francis, one's a boy. So they're both quite elderly. And they were so connected to, they were Tony voters, I think. They oh, knew wow. everybody. I mean, Mildred Natwick. Oh, people God. like that came to see our show. Mildred Natwick, who is 
in if she one of Foster Kane's wives? He, she's in Citizen Kane. Is she one of the wives? Oh, she might be. I think you're right. You know what? We'll look it up. And with Helen Hayes, because her daughter went there, and the theater on the ground floor was called the Mary MacArthur Theater because Helen Hayes' daughter died, I think, of scarlet fever or something. Oh, but God. she had gone to the academy but died very young. And so they named that theater downstairs after her. Really? Yeah. It was just loaded with history, the place. That's amazing. Um, I don't know where I had Citizen Kane in my head, but she's in, um, oh, my God, Barefoot in the Park. Oh, of course. Um, of Trouble course. with Harry. Trouble with Harry was just at the New Beverly this week, and I do not know why I didn't go see it. It's so fun. And later I played Mildred Natwick's role in Barefoot in the Park. Really? No, no, I'm sorry. I played the daughter. <laughs> um, uh, with whom? Sean Cassidy. Wow. Yes, we did it in um, Aspen, Colorado. Wow. Mm -hmm. In the winter? No, in the summer. In the summer. So it's absolutely beautiful. And you're doing this Neil Simon classic filled with great jokes. At 8,000 feet. So yeah. when you open the door and everybody's out of breath, nobody had to act. Amazing. Yeah. Because we There's that great running gag where somebody rings the doorbell and then like 20 right. minutes later they make yeah. an entrance. Um, so yeah. So I was Corey. And then, um, which by the way, is an extremely difficult role. More than you would think. But one day I was having sort of an actor thing, being obnoxious. And I said to the director, Paul Blake, uh, I said, you know, I, I just, it's like, she's like this, and then she's like this, and I never leave the stage. And I said, you know, it's its hard. And he said, oh, I know, there's Corey, and then there's Lear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Paul, I'll shut up now. <laughs> and he said it so straight. <laughs> That's vicious. <laughs> right. Damn. Um, <laughs> this business really has a way of uh, smacking you on the nose, oh, doesn't it? all the it? time, left um, and right. So... How quickly do you transition from from the American Academy to to doing soaps? You did the Doctors, is that right? And what else? Well, did... first uh, I did Love of Life, which is where I met my husband Jerry. Okay. And it was my first audition, if you can believe it, because and in the second year at the Academy, things are different now. But then, uh, lots of agents came. Mm -hmm. I mean, like everybody came to our shows. Yeah. Everybody. Because, of course, every college didn't have a theater department and promising you a professional career and holding every college in the world in May, holding senior showcases so you could meet agents. You were kind of the only game There were town. only so many then. Yeah. And it was very easy to meet people and to be seen. So they would come to our plays, and I was somebody who played my own age in the plays. Because oh, interesting. I could not look older than anybody on stage to play the mom or anything. Right. So I was a very sellable type. So I did get some calls from agents. And Meanwhile, there's these 21-year-olds playing Willie Loman. They're like, yeah. Yeah, uh. that's, you know, and believe me, we had some brilliant actors in my class who would play that, but it would be a little harder for them to then get a meeting with the agent. But I went in to meet one of the agents that, that they were allowed to call us after January. They didn't want people going off and auditioning and leaving. Okay, all right. The Fair rest enough. of the program, there's only a few months left. So I went in and she said, they're having trouble casting a part on this soap opera of a girl who's a drug pusher. And I thought, oh, that sounds so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and they sent me over. And I won't tell you the names of the other actresses that were waiting, but they were people who I knew who they were. And um, they told me to come back later that day. And so... And I tell this story in my book. Okay. So you've read it. But I went across the street. I ran back to the school to do whatever I was doing at school. And then I was supposed to go back 
to the place where I had the audition for a callback on the same day when I was exhausted. I couldn't. I had taken a cab, which I really couldn't afford, and I didn't have any money, but I was so hungry, so I went across the street to the deli where they always let you run a tab because we were all so broke. Yeah. And I said, could I get a tuna sandwich, and could you put it on credit? And he said, oh, we're not allowed to do it anymore for the students. And I said, you're not giving credit anymore? And he said, no, and I had no money. And I said, okay. And I thought, I'm going to have to go to this callback, starving to death. And the guy behind me in line said, give her a tuna sandwich. I'll pay for it. And I said, oh, my God, thank you. Oh, my God. And he said, it's okay. I'm a patron of the arts. And so I had my tuna sandwich and went to my audition. And I got it, my first job. It was never that easy again, believe me, but. It's almost a terrible thing to happen. I, I got very yeah. lucky when I first moved to L.A. And it, 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 I knew in the back of my head that I was very lucky, but it still set up some unrealistic expectations. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> what, um, we were just talking about this with another interview the other day. The, the incredible rigor that a soap puts you through. Mm-hmm. I mean, the work ethic that is instilled, and you think of how many great people have come out of that world, um, both in theater, television, film, every everywhere. Um, what is it about soaps that makes people so sharp? Is it just the amount of pages per day? Yeah, I mean, you only have the script. Well, if you're working on a Monday or something, you'll have the script ahead of time. But generally, if you're doing a few in a row, you're just memorizing that script the night before, or you're trying to memorize it. And I was never any good at reading cue cards. And yes, we had handwritten cue cards yeah. at the time. And I was working with an actress who would just look right over my shoulder and look right at the cue cards. <laughs> she had no problem with it. <laughs> Eyeline be damned. <laughs> but the hard thing about it is you never feel successful. Well, so. You don't have the time. You oh, never man. feel like you've nailed it. Oh, okay. And I was so young, and you can develop bad habits. And it was so frustrating to me. And I remember that when I was on The Doctors, this didn't happen to me on Love of Life because I was playing a person in control of what she was doing. Oh, interesting. But um, on The Doctors, they would constantly, I'd, I'd open the script, uh, enter, Pe enter Penny who breaks down sobbing. I'd say, could you, could I, like, could there be some dialogue <laughs> before I start sobbing? <laughs> I did not know how to do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, now I've lived a life and I can hardly not cry, but <laughs> when you're that age, the pressure is unbelievable. Yeah. And it was impossible. It was yeah. just impossible. So I never felt successful. Oh, interesting. I yeah. feel it would be so rushed. You wouldn't really have a chance to marinate in anything. But you get off book very quickly. I suppose that's the trade-off. Well, that's the thing is that it, they never did a they never did it over ever. It was almost like it was live. Wow. My husband did do as the world turns when it was live. Wow. It was it was live into the seventies. My God, really? I, I don't think I realized that. Yeah, wow. they had. They, I've. I worked with a lot of those actors subsequently and heard many stories. They're pretty funny stories. I bet. Of I things bet. that happened. It's all, it's all going to be like the last scene of Tootsie again and again and again, I imagine. Well, uh, and then one guy left the building because he thought that was his last scene. <laughs> <laughs> how do you end up in L.A. and how do you end up on my one of my favorite one and dones, Wizards and Warriors? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, well, let's see. So uh, Jerry and I had always talked about moving to L.A., but it's easier said than done. And 
It kind of happened in stages. And then I got a Broadway show just when it was time to move to L.A. Of course. Finally. This was uh, Once in a Lifetime? Yes. Right. The Kaufman and, and Hart thing. Yeah. So I finished that. And then I went to L.A. And I thought, well, this is good. I will go, having done a Broadway show. And they'll just love me. Yeah, but, that, the credits don't always translate. Oh, my God. No, not at all. Especially in those days, it meant nothing to them. <sighs> And it was a long time before I got work in L.A. Really? I, mean, I got little bits of work, but uh, I mostly didn't. And also, I have to say, it was the 70s. And if you were blonde and cute, you wound up competing against people who were blonde and gorgeous and built. Okay. And that was being looked for at the time. So I was cute. This, I wasn't that. This is the era of Suzanne Summers' ascendancy. That is correct. Okay. Okay. So I lost a lot of roles for that reason. I see. It was quite clear and even stated to me sometimes. So, What do you think put you ahead of the pack when you auditioned for Wizards and Warriors? Comedy. Yeah. Because I knew that other girls could work up the tears had bigger boobs. They all had bigger boobs. Higher cheekbones, you know. I mean, what were you going to do to compete? But if you made them laugh. Can't get surgery for that. That's right. You yeah. cannot get surgery for that. So that was the thing, is that there were only so many actresses focusing on comedy who had that in their toolbox at the time. Now, with improv everywhere, I mean, it's incredibly competitive. It's never been so competitive, which is why my book is completely out of date. Wizards and Warriors for um, the uninitiated, I think you can find the pilot online, um, was a single camera D&D uh, &D comedy, essentially. It was, and, and as someone who was really starting to like, not just become, not just be a fan of comedy, but to start to really try to understand what worked and what didn't, and someone who was simultaneously taking his lunch classes, his lunch periods to play D&D, &D, it hit me at exactly the right <laughs> moment. You, I can't even tell you how like perfectly timed this show was in my life. I doubt I even knew what D and D was when we were doing it. But you, but so there's this this fantastical Wizards and Warriors world. You've got um, uh, Duncan Regeer, uh, the late great Jeff Conway, Julia as the princess in distress. Um, what what are your memories of that? It was such a specific tone. I'm not surprised it didn't last in that time. We didn't really have single camera comedies at that time, did we? No, it was very unusual, and we <laughs> broke the fourth wall. Before yeah. Moonlighting, I would like to say. Yeah. Um, there was that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's pretty easy to explain because what Don Rio, the brilliant creator of the show, wanted to do was The Princess Bride. Five which years had before been that had been filmed. So tied up and in turnaround and tied up again, and it was a mess. Mm. The book, trying to get that book to the screen was at that time completely impossible. And I I knew that. That's when he walked into his pitch meeting at CBS, he said, what I want to do is The Princess Bride. Since, And he actually had some kind of, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, some kind of sign-off from William Goldman, fine with me. Don't call it The Princess Bride, but go yeah, with God. But, you know, I, I 
I mean, really, there's, there's a lot of differences. Yeah. But still, you're a, a medieval, funny, sword play princesses, of course. A, a level of the you, supernatural. You could say that it was the same. So um, there was no threat about that or any concern about it. And the person in charge of CBS at the time was a huge Princess Bride fan because the book was such a hit. Yeah, yeah. But very cultishly. The great William Goldman. The great William Goldman. So uh, that was what got it greenlit. However, it was the most expensive show you know, I was CBS looking, had done at that point. I was looking at it and I was trying to figure out how it was made. I'm like, okay, so that's second unit, just stock footage of a castle in Ireland. That could be Griffith Park, I guess. Where did you shoot it? Greystone. Greystone Mansion, out there on the uh, up the 405. Really? Yeah. That's what it was? Yeah. Hilarious. That's where we were. Well, it looked great. That's where I went up the hill on the unicorn. And yeah, all it that. looked really authentic. It looked like like mm -hmm. that's a that's a medieval castle. I never I you have I would never would have guessed it was actually in uh, Southern California. And then Again. the rest is like cool like uh, matte paintings and stuff. Yeah. They'd never spent that much money, and I don't think they really wanted it to go because it was so expensive. And I think it went over budget every week. It was oh my God. very difficult. It's such a, you're so good at, you seem to be in on the joke in a way that not even the rest of the cast is necessarily. There's just a a keen sense of delightful irony. There's a scene in the pilot where you're being courted um, and they're trying to, they're trying to like blow you up and they, they bring a, uh, like a magical, what is essentially a magical bomb. <laughs> Uh, in front of you. Um, it's been a little while and yeah, I've, watched it. I've probably watched it a bit more recently than you have. But there is this incredible, yeah, it's a Carol Lombard thing now that you mention mm -hmm. it. It's a real like, like you're cribbing from the best, a a, a sense of of silly grace. I think is, the, is how I would phrase yeah, it. That's a nice phrase. You know, there's a silly grace to your performance in this thing, which again, look it up online because it is really a delight. Um, was it was it one of those shows where you could sort of tell you guys were doomed? Was it fun to work on? Was it a little of both? Well, it was arduous to work on. Yeah. Uh, just with the costumes and yeah. uh, the sword fights and that kind of thing. Uh, for me, it was a blast mm -hmm. as far as improvising or just coming up with bits. Uh, Don Rio was the most wonderful showrunner to work for. He was all in on all of it, and I'd pitch something, and that was fine to try. Uh, so I loved that. I loved that freedom. It was great. We had wonderful directors, including Bill Bixby, who was just terrific. Yeah, directed the pilot. I was struck, I was struck to see that, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I was in my own little world because it was mostly men. right. And yeah, it was you and your handmaiden in most of the scenes, it looks like. That was so much fun working oh, with her. Oh it was so fun to have another female to work with. Because sure, sure. I usually didn't. Clive Revel. Clive Art Revel. LaFleur. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is a gorgeous cast. Look yeah. at this guy. Clive Revel was a trip. Kind of the Adrian Scarborough of his day, wouldn't you say? I would say, yeah. 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 Um, Fagan in Oliver. Uh, Fagan in Oliver. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and... Um, the uh, the evil one in Time Bandits uh, around the same oh, time, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's some there's some heavy hitters in in that cast. Um, so yeah, you've got these scenes with Phyllis Katz, who is um, who is of of groundlings renown. Um, did you guys talk improv? Was was there some improv? Nobody even used the word improv then. Oh my god. I mean, 
were you born even at this time? I, as I've already made it completely clear to you that I watched the show live. I have made it. I've abundantly clear to you. You did. I am. uh, uh, Yeah, I was. I would have been twelve when it came out. Yeah, I was born in nineteen seventy-one. But no, nobody used the word improv. There, there was the improv, which is where my husband hung, hung out. Did he do stand-up? Did Jerry do stand-up? No, no. He just hung out. But um, he knew Bud very well, and he he would see Richard Pryor, yeah. Bette Midler. This was the old days in New York, so he's older than me. And he was always about the improv. Literally down the street Bud from where Freeman. I grew up. Bud Freeman, yeah. So he that was a big part of his life, but nobody was doing improv. It was They were doing stand-up. Yeah, yeah. Midler was singing. I mean, that's what it was. Yeah. And that was the only time you heard the word improv. So it, we'd call it like ad-libbing or I'd say I have an idea. Right. But nobody, nobody would say just improvise this scene. But it's interesting because you have so much more freedom to do that on a single cam than you do on the more so tightly polished more. format of a multi-cam. Um, which is interesting because that you know you're rehearsing all week, you're going in front of an audience, you don't want to keep them here all night. Mm-hmm. Don't fuck with it. Also sounds a little weird if you improvise on a multicam, but it feels very organic on Wizards and Warriors. It feels very organic a few years later on Moonlighting. You know, there's there's uh, there's a there's a freedom to shooting TV like a movie that I think allows for a little more looseness, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I love doing single camera comedy for that reason. Yeah. Because of the looseness that you have. I just, I recently did a movie where it was, uh, everything was shot two ways. It was shot the right way and then it was improvised, every single scene. Oh, fun. And, it, you know, with all these improv guys, it was really fun. You can it, hold your own, though. It's a, well, um, it's a spoof of Hallmark Christmas movies. Oh, fun. Yeah, Vince Vaughn produced it and they're actually cutting two separate cuts of it they just shot it a couple months ago you're in that yeah oh uh britney snow justin long yeah 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 friend of mine got fired from that um no harm no it's all right it's okay these things happen um that's just how i know it was it was recently in production um i see we can talk about it later if you'd like um but um the um uh, yeah, there's a uh, a spontaneity to that kind of uh, work that is is really fun. So then you go from there and you you um, incredibly amazing story get canceled and get another job the same day on Newhart. When Newhart goes away, you're again part of a replacement team. You you are you are riding the bench and you're called up to the majors for designing women. Yeah, there was another one in between, but it's, it's not worth talking about. Where uh, I did. Replace someone. Yeah, what is it with the replacing? And then Designing Women. Yeah. Um, which was just one season for okay. me. Uh, and It's an amazing season, though, because you got Ray Charles to do the opening theme yeah. song, and you're all sitting on the piano, which is fun. Well, actually, you're sitting on the piano. The other ones aren't sitting. You're Because you're, you're, you know, teensy, and you can fit on top of a piano. So it's... I can't even remember that I was sitting on the piano. I think that's you, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so you get to this amazing work and then, uh, it's the Jan Hooks year. She's on the show. Yeah. May she rest. And there's a great episode where, um, your ex-husband comes back, um, that I, I, I sort of pulled randomly. I wanted to pick like a, 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 an episode where you were kind of The one Jerry played. My husband. No. No, he, he was in one where, um, oh, he, he played me for a fool and dumped me. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. What was that like working with Jerry? Well, we had to be like making out all the time. So Fantastic. I was very glad they cast my husband. Yeah, sure, sure, <laughs> sure. What was that? What was the vibe like on that set to come in knowing that people had left and you were kind of replacing and how did it, was it comfortable? Well, you're smiling very politely at me. You can speak pretty freely. A lot of the people we're discussing are dead. So uh, Almost everybody's gone. It's just incredible. God, it's like yeah. only Annie's left. Yeah, the Dixie Carter, Jan Hooks. Jesus Dixie, Christ. Meshach, Jan. Oh my God, Meshach's gone too, that's right. I know. Holy shit. Um, well, what, what I will say about the show is that the um, actresses, the cast, were so phenomenal. They were so, uh, just the way they conducted themselves at times when the script really wasn't done and we weren't working under the best conditions is all I can say. Um, it was impressive. Mm. And I'd been in the business a pretty long time by then, but I really learned from them. Mm. I learned just how to be on a set, really the best way to be on a set and to work. They made a big impression on me. And in, in a, something I'm going to say is very corny, but and also um, how to be a woman I got from that. Well, not Meshach so much, but okay. uh, <laughs> the ladies. How, how so? Um, if I'm prying too much, let me know. But I, no, I'm, I, you've, you've, inter you've introduced something very interesting to the conversation. I think it has to do with the fact that they were women working together, and there wasn't a lot of that then. I had not been in an atmosphere where it was a lot of women working together. It was you and the Golden Girls. And did you guys predate the Golden Girls? You might have. No. Same time? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's just not a situation that you're in much when you're a girl, where you're working with You'll turn around and everybody's a girl. In any industry. Yes, in any industry. But, you know, it doesn't happen. You don't no, have your... I guess not. Like, I don't have actresses my age that are my friends because I never work with them because I'm the only one. Right. Jesus and they were the Christ. only one. Yeah. It's the same with um, uh, female writers, especially in comedies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They're the woman in the room. They never have a friend that from work because a girlfriend that's changing always, a bit it is it is but, changing, but in the 80s time. and the 90s forget about yeah. it yeah those were ho horrible sausage hangs yeah, yeah just. they just didn't know each other uh and so this was my first time doing that oh, being wow. like that without a mixed group if, of course you know, yeah except for meshach who's probably the funniest person in the world yeah yeah oh my god he made me laugh so hard um and there was just a dignity, I guess, about them while they were doing this comedy, working under sometimes difficult cir circumstances, and the supportiveness, and just this self-possession. Mm. There was no room for angst as an actor, or, or any of that. There was no time for it. Which I feel like flies against your natural instincts a little bit. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> mine Probably. too mine too totally yeah, yeah I, I completely uh, sympathize but I to be in a no drama atmosphere like mm -hmm. that had to be a, a very healthy adjustment I imagine and you know I've done a lot of theater and yeah. you know you have four weeks of rehearsal during which you're going to take moments where you go to the side and you talk to the director and you like everything comes out. There's time for all of that to come out when you do theater. Mm -hmm. And on a set, it's a whole different thing. You have to be in a different mode. You have four days of rehearsal. And that's it, usually. And often it in, wasn't In the multicam. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, it was a very different atmosphere and instructive. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated those women so much, that cast. It's a great cast. It's a really, really dazzling cast. And it the show... Um, there's one episode I watched that um, where it's just a, a, a runner of Donald Trump and Marla Maples jokes at the top. Well, <laughs> was Marla wild. was on the show. God, that's right. Uh, Playing herself, wasn't she? Um, was she? As you can see, I've, I, think I she may not have been. even been watching at the time, but I, it's been so long. I think the deal was your character was friends with her or something. Probably because my character would have been uh, aspiring to that world. Yeah, yeah. But she was, by the way, darling. And we, yeah. <laughs> before she came, we said, oh, my God, we've got to really pump her for information, which wasn't necessary at all. She was very open. Interesting. And I don't think it's called information. I think it's called compromat. It's the yes. term for Russian. Forget it. I'm kidding. Yes, I, I actually I don't get know. that political on the show. Um, Just uh, online. Just uh, online, John. I know. Yeah. Um, uh, I have something written down here, and I'm trying to remember what it means. Um, uh, perhaps you can explain it. I have baby talk what happened. Oh, what's mm-hmm. baby talk? What was baby talk? Okay, that's what I did after Newhart. Oh, is that the is that the one that came in the middle? Yes. Okay. And um, this is the one that George Clooney was on. That's right. Yes, it was a Clooney thing, right. and it would have been Clooney and post facts of life pre ER, obviously. Yes. Okay. Um, so Connie Selico was playing the lead person, and she left the show. And uh, they had come to me once before, and I guess I said no. I don't recall the first time they came to me or what the deal was. Uh, also, it was, it was very complicated because I was under contract. This is when they did developmental development contracts a lot with people. Right. And I had one of those with MTM. Mary Tyler Moore's company. Yes, where I had done Newhart, so, which never turned into anything. So it became... but, then, but let's just talk for a moment just for the listener about a development contract. And they still have them occasionally where they'll they'll sort of lock down an actor and say, we're going to try to develop something around you. Yes. And, and they you'll pay meet you with writers and a holding fee. To, to be held so that you can't take another uh, long-running show. And it's a blessing and a curse. If something works out, then it's Seinfeld. But a mm-hmm. lot of times it doesn't work out and you're right. just kind of stuck not working, being modestly compensated for a year. Yeah, pretty modestly, and you have lunch with a lot of writers <laughs> who are trying to come up with ideas who are also in a development deal, right? and nothing happens. And there's just a lot of fear. <laughs> there's yes. just a lot of fear and anxiety. So it was my one foray into that. And so they needed, so they came to me again, and I don't know, it was right when I probably building a house, we were building a house, and I thought, oh, now we could get used brick. So I said, okay, uh, <laughs> on the patio. And so I met with them and I, and I said, okay. And it was a very troubled set. And this is very, very well known yeah. for people who care. And, uh, you know, everybody knows, but I'm not going to say any names because what's the point? But we had a lot of fun, we actors, because there was a lot of waiting for pages new pages to come and so we just kind of had a lot of fun and what was so troubled about it the aside trouble from the delayed script? was that people were not being treated well okay. and George mm-hmm. Clooney who was not then a movie star um, there were some words and some people were not being treated well 
and George spoke up. Mm. And he threw a script for very good reason. Okay. And uh, all I can say is that this was not a great career move for the George of that time. But George then and George now, I don't even think it was a close call. He does the right thing. Yeah. He stands up for people. I've seen that. I've, for everyone I know who's worked with him, I've never worked with him, yeah. but everyone I know who's worked with him said he is, first of all, amazing even to day players, which is no small thing in my line of work yeah. that, that makes me respect you immensely. But he sticks up for people and he 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 is sort of a de facto union rep wherever he goes, mm -hmm. which is a very endearing quality. Yeah. That's cool. That's nice. And to he hear. was already like that when he couldn't really afford to be like that. Right. And so George left and then there, I didn't. So that love interest in the show, just they just had her dating a lot, and this this thing that had been established wasn't done anymore. Mm. Anyway, they did renew it for a second year because it was you know a great concept and everything, and it was a whole new set of producers, mm. and I just asked to be let go because it had been so stressful mm -hmm. that it was hard to even imagine. I'm sure the new produ producers were nice, but. I didn't believe that that difficulty wouldn't return. Mm -hmm. And I had a baby and another one. and uh, So they did let me go. There was actually no problem. Well, they were new producers. They probably would love to retool the show in their own way. Right, I mean, right. So I don't think they had a problem with it at all. And like the next day, I suddenly heard from Designing Women, which was weird because – and then everybody thought that I dumped it for Designing Women. It was nothing like that. Interesting. It just happened. Yeah. It's one of the rare occasions where the internet might have been able to clarify that, but we didn't have an internet yet. That's right. Yeah. When do you start playing moms? Um... The first time I played a mom, I was a mom of like a 14-year-old. <laughs> it was a little shocking. I was still in my 40s, and I, but I was never playing anybody in my 40s. I almost missed that decade entirely. I thought I was playing someone in her 30s. And so there was a scene where I, my husband and I were like breaking up or something. What show is this? Oh, God, it was a TV movie. Okay. Um, Murder at the PTA. Phenomenal. Great is title. Is that right? You know, I hope it's right. That I, I want title it to be may right. have changed, actually. Okay. Um, so the husband and I were talking about our problems, and I said to the writer, the producers, I said, "Do you want me to throw something in here about how we got married too young?" <laughs> and they said, "Because I just assumed." That right. Right. I mean, they obviously. would be worried that the audience wouldn't buy this <laughs> that I had a fourteen-year-old, <laughs> and they said, "No, it's fine." Monsters. Thought, oh, it is, huh? Okay. It's funny, when you played my mom, you're, I think, 19 years older than me, if that, and I was hoping they were going to say something in our script about the fact that, like, you know, well, obviously, mom had us really young, right? That line's coming at some point, right? Because, for fuck's sake, look at us. <laughs> yeah, nope. <laughs> um, I, please, I've got, um, I've now transitioned. Once I had kids, they could finally cast me as a dad, and... Um, I've had, uh, yeah, I've played uh, the a very, very 
what to my mind is a very very young dad and it's never there's never a line about it at all it's just like you're the father of teenagers buddy that's your deal and from my point of view having played your mom and seeing you play this the bad son the the screw-up son yeah that pilot um it was startling to me to see you play dads and i have to say i'm not blowing smoke but i was so impressed on speechless oh because there was really heartfelt dramatic moments and i was i i and there were there were scenes where it was not verbal acting that were so moving oh man and i never think that somebody from improv does that you know, oh, I appreciate especially that. Especially when it's nonverbal. That really means the world to me. Yeah. Thank you. That means a great deal coming from you and in general. Uh, that was a great gig. Let's talk about the importance of improv. You cite it in your book. Um, as you've said repeatedly, this is not the sort of thing you would have been trained in. You would have just learned on your on the go. If you weren't at Second City, then there was just no place to be studying it. Maybe the groundlings, but you didn't study the groundlings. So it's just something you sort of picked up as you went along. No. No, I didn't pick it up anywhere. Um, the uh, Second City to me was sketch comedy. It was Nichols and May to me. Right. And then later, um, SNL. I still didn't hear the word improv. It wasn't part of my life as mm -hmm. I was uh, growing up within the business. Um, and I wish it had been because I now see how helpful it is um, with my own daughter, with young actors. Just getting you from A to B so much faster, I think, than acting classes. It, or at least it's a good addition to it. It makes yeah. you brave. It does make you brave. I think it, it, just to tie it back into what you said about like the emotional beats and stuff, what it does at its best is it makes you a very keen listener. And it does all the things that, that Meisner should do as well in terms of noticing the tiny little changes in flexion in, in your scene partner and letting that really land with you. And if you're reacting honestly to someone, you're, you're gonna get you know, some very, very funny moments, but you're also gonna get some very moving moments, particularly on that show. I spent the first year of that show on the verge of tears, not just in the script, but just, you know, we, we had these families that would visit set or they would write to me on social media oh. who were so moved by what we were doing and were feeling seen for the first time on television that I was welling up fucking constantly mm -hmm. and it wasn't that it, it, it you know i got i got colder as the years went by i just kind of like was able to balance it a little bit in seasons two and three and and not be you know quite so hard on my sleeve anymore but i think the there, there's nothing to say that that improv can't make you a better dramatic actor too you know it can it can make you spontaneous it can make you um live in the moment it can make you a sharper listener and all of those things will also feed your dramatic work, I think. Yes. Right? Makes sense, right? Right. Um, uh, let's jump ahead a little bit. I've had some really interesting recent work as... I want to talk about your work on looking. Mm. Um, uh, Donna Banana. Um, Dana Banana? Dana Banana. It's Dana Banana. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, Dana. Um, what... How, it's such an interesting role because she's a very nuanced character. She's a progressive mom who loves her gay son, but she's still of a certain generation. She's still got a little of that boomer thing going on where, like, 
it's hard to tell how much of it is performative. And how did you, how did that role come to you? Did you audition for that part? I auditioned for it with um, the most wonderful casting director, whose name is Carmen. She was fantastic. Okay. She's the reason. Um, I just wanted to do those scenes all day long. And yeah. she would say, what do you want to do next? I'd say, I just want to do it again. Let's do this. Let's do that. And the audition went on and on and on. Really? And the, the the role was, the casting of that role was very, very important to them because um, everybody was gay or um, self-identified in some way as being not straight. Right. Not maybe a gender thing or gay. Everybody, cast and crew. Cast, crew, producers. Writers, yeah. Right. Um, and... To them, their mom was everything, especially the gay, the gay guys. Mm. Their mother had had so much to do with their life and their feelings about coming out, not wanting to disappoint their mother. And uh, that whole week, week and a half, whatever it was, doing the first episode that I did was like therapy. Really? Everybody sitting around and talking. Really? It was so important to them, and then I felt the weight of the world to to <laughs> do them to do their mothers proud. Yeah, John Hoffman wrote that episode, and it was incredibly important to him. He has now created Murders in the Building. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. only so Murders in the Building. Okay, he's great. Doing okay. Anyway, then when I did the second episode, he told me that he was very nervous about his mother seeing the first episode where they brought in the mother right. because she knew he'd written it. Interesting. And um, he and I had talked about his mother a lot on the set. We had really hit it off uh, at that first episode. So it had aired when I did the second episode in the second season. And he said that he was so nervous when she watched it. And she, I'm going to cry. Um, she called him and she said, you're a class act. Because of the character he wrote based on her mm -hmm. that you brought to life. Because he got what was hard for her. He got where he failed to help their relationship. And it was subtle, but it was all there in the episode. And he was so nervous about her seeing it, and that's what she said. Wow. That's lovely to hear. Yeah. Can you tell me more about the Christmas movie that's coming up? Um. It's called Christmas with the Campbells, I believe is the title that's going to stick. Vince Vaughn produced it and co-wrote it. Mm -hmm. And um, Brittany Snow is in it, Justin Long. I love Justin Long. He's a good guy. Oh, my God. He's a really good guy. He's like Jesus. I mean, <laughs> he is. Well, because he's in great shape and in his 30s. There's that. Yeah. Um, he's just... Manches. He's a mensch. He really is. But yeah. it's like too, it's not a strong enough word for him. He's uh, the kindest person I've ever met. Yeah. Uh, he's absolutely delightful. I, I can't say enough about him. Yeah, he's a good guy. And then he is one of the guys that Brittany Snow. You know, it's it's the absolute template for. They, they miss no cliche. Right. Right. Christmas Did you movie. shoot it in Canada the way they always shoot those things? Utah. 
Utah. Oh, interesting. Plot twist. Okay. Yes. They always shoot them in Calgary with like, you know, uh, uh, with fake snow everywhere. <laughs> yes. Well, this was Utah with, well, we were up on the mountain most of the time. Oh, so great. it was real so, snow. Perfect. We were okay. up by Park City. Um, and Alex, God damn it, I'm going to, from Saturday Night Live. Borstein? No. Uh, Alex. Currently. Uh, currently. Oh, uh, Alex uh, Moffat. Yes. Rewind. Uh, so, yes, Brittany Snow, Alex Moffat is the other guy that's okay. the boyfriend that kind of dumps her. And then Justin Long is the one she meets when she goes to her now ex-boyfriend's parents' house for Christmas. Phenomenal. Because I invite her for Christmas, even though they've broken up. I still insist she come and have Christmas with us. And then she meets my nephew and... It's everything you are there sparks. Are, are there sparks? There are sparks. <laughs> there are sparks. Yes. Oh, good, good. I was worried there wouldn't be sparks. <laughs> this you, sounds great. This sounds really the, fun. The improv that these guys did, and Alex Moffat playing this guy who's absolutely an asshole, but doesn't know that he's an asshole. But because he's an asshole, he's finally realizes he's losing the girl to. Have you ever seen him cousin. do his guy who just bought a boat on SNL? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's wonderful. I, I know. it's so. It's so well observed. <laughs> it really is. He's and it's so funny because then the Pete Davidson thing with buying the Staten Island Ferry happened while we were shooting. Oh, it did. That's and amazing. I was looking at my phone. I said, Pete Davidson bought the Staten Island Ferry, and he said, "You're kidding." I said, "No, it's right here." That's right. And, and then they did a whole thing on update about it. Then he flew back to do that episode, and then they did the whole thing and brought Pete Davidson on to because of the guy who bought the, the yes. guy who just bought a boat thing. It, it was really very funny. It all happened in a period of about 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> he was flying back and forth doing SNL. Um, anyway, the fun thing was that we would shoot it straight like a sincere Hallmark movie. Right, right, right. And then we would shoot it crazy oh my and God. very um, irreverent. Yeah. But Vince's thing is that you should still want to see what happens, care that she winds up with the right guy. Mm-hmm. He wants you to, the audience to still feel invested in a Hallmark movie mm -hmm. until it goes. Err. Right, right. And he knows what he wants, but the only way to do it was to shoot it two ways, do two separate cuts. Interesting. And then when he edits, he will decide on the rhythm of it. And they're going to roll this out this coming Christmas, I imagine. Yes, it's AMC Plus, and I think they're going to do a theatrical release. Oh, fantastic. Uh, but. Brittany's character, of course, is straight the whole time. Right, right. Because she doesn't do an irreverent version of herself. She's, but she still manages to get, you can see, she really gets the comedy that she. Well, you need a straight man. It. You need someone yeah. to come in and she's sort of. She's absolutely perfect. Dean Martin their way through this sort of thing. You know, Blue doesn't show up on Blue is something I used to tell my improv uh, students all the time. You need someone to kind of yes. react honestly to right. everything that's going on around them. And uh, I imagine she'd be pretty good at that. Oh, she was just great. They, it's really funny. I cannot wait to see it. At least I think it is. I, I you know, have... I did versions that weren't funny, <laughs> <laughs> and then we did versions that were funny. I don't know. I um, I have a a a. I'm not going to say how many years, but I have a very very long track record of trusting you to be really really funny, and I uh, am uh, I am very optimistic about this film. Ah, thanks, Julia. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me, John. I thought he'd never <laughs> And that is an episode wrap on Juliet Duffy. You can see her next in Christmas with the Campbells, which will likely be out 
well, you know, this Christmas. Before we go this week, I want to send a quick shout out to the family and friends of Second City alum Mike Haggerty. We'll put up a photo of him so you can see who I'm talking about. And we really do need to use a photo because years ago there was a piece in The New Yorker when Second City had uh, a big alumni reunion for their 50th anniversary, and they chartered a plane to take all the L.A. Second City alums back to Chicago, and uh, they put a New Yorker reporter on the plane to kind of observe everything that was going on. And before Haggerty got on the plane, Richard Kind said the following, you'll recognize him, but you won't know from where. Mike Haggerty had worked on Brewster's Millions and Entourage and Friends as the building superintendent, and he will be sorely missed. May his memory be a blessing. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Ew, ew, ew.